Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Hey, listen, uh, let's get started on oil. I think that an awful lot comes down to uh, Omicron and whether or not lockdowns and reduced oil demand are going to be, you know, lockdowns will be necessary and the impact on oil demand. It looks now as though this is a manageable situation. I would expect oil to stay in its current range. Uh, it's come down some, but you know, it just means the backwardation is less. In other words, the current price come down. So, so the price in 23 or 24 is not $10 lower. Now it's maybe 6 or $7 lower. In terms of natural gas, where the current month has come down a lot, pretty much this time of the year weather, although it is the case that there is more production, about four bees a day more, say in August. And that's a little disconcerting, but on the other hand, Chenier is starting up the sixth train at Sabine Pass. Each train is seven hundred million a day of gas. And then Venture Global is about ready to go with about another billion a day of gas in Louisiana. And I think Chenier has another train coming on and in their Corpus Christi facility. So LNG demand has been 10.5 or 11 by this time next year, might be 12, 12 something like that, which is pretty good. LNG continues to be very high in Asia and in Europe. And of course, the essential and misbehavior by Russia and the Ukraine is just going to add to that. In terms of macro stuff, and probably predicted by some charts that Bill Crane keeps, the long bond went down. I mean, you would think with the expectation now now that Jay Powell's been renominated, you would think members of the Federal Reserve Board all seem in favor of having the tapering happen quicker. In other words, start November, finish it all up so you're you know, the Federal Reserve isn't buying more by uh May or something, I think there's an acknowledgement that they probably should have started the tapering in May or June. But despite all that, the long, the 10-year bond is down. So in yield, go figure. The stock market took a fright on Omicron, you know, announced the Friday after Thanksgiving and uh, seems to work its way back. The inflation pressures, such as are, seem less out of control, I would say, than a couple of weeks ago, not just because of hydrocarbon prices, but just, you know, less less of a concern. On the political front, I think there's been some help there. The uh, social infrastructure bill is going to get delayed into January. The senators have gotten together and figured out a way to raise the debt ceiling without any Republican votes and without qualifying it for uh, reconciliation. Everything looks more manageable. That being said, equities, if, 
we didn't have price inflation up until recently. We certainly had asset inflation, and one of the assets inflated was stock market in general, so and cryptocurrencies and real estate and so on and so forth. So, well, think of it this way. Uh, we have about a $22 trillion economy to serve as the central bank in our economy probably takes a balance sheet of around $2 trillion. The Fed's balance sheet is now eight. Before the pandemic, it was four. A fair amount of the extra spending during the pandemic was monetized by simply increasing the Fed's balance sheet as it did quantitative easing. Can it be that as you bring that balance, well, first of all, stop it. Stop, you know, stop buying new paper. But as you bring that balance sheet back towards four, and four, four was already elevated uh, in terms of what the Federal Reserve needs in terms of a balance sheet to manage uh, the banking system. Do we really think that interest rates will remain in negative territory after adjusting for inflation? And let's say inflation isn't running 5%, but let's say it's finally broken out above the Fed's range, which was 2%. So let's say it's 35 or 4%. If the interest rate is 2% and the inflation rate is 4%, that's a negative 2%. How in the world will we have negative interest rates if our central bank starts to reduce its size and not be financing the federal deficit? And if other central banks all over the world, the European Central Bank, the People's Bank of China, the Japan Central Bank, all you know, start to reduce their balance sheets, go from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. And I, I don't, don't believe it's the case that we will still have negative real interest rates. I mean, the the, the, the logical place for real interest rate is 1% or 2% real return plus the inflation rate. Well, that would put the 10-year bond, you know, which is currently 150 or something, that would put it at, you know, 2% plus 3.5%, 5.5%. Do we really believe that the 10-year bond, the base rate in our economy, going from 1.5% to 5% is not going to cause some diminution in asset value, whether it's general level of stocks or any other asset base out there. I mean, I just don't see it. And uh, with that, still got most of our 20 of our 30 minutes left. Been lots of NVIDIA news. Mike sent me some Apple analysis or whatnot, but why don't we do NVIDIA first? And then I'll spend five minutes asking uh, Mike about this Apple background uh, that he sent me, which has something to do with Apple, but quite a lot to do with China. But go ahead on the video, Mike. So the big news last week was that the FTC has filed to block the NVIDIA acquisition of ARM. So I want to go through some of that stuff, and maybe we can talk through a couple of the things that could happen out of this. First of all, it's maybe not that surprising that's happened because it is being challenged in the UK and some other places. But there are some different things about this one. The FTC alleges that the acquisition would give NVIDIA unlawful control over computing technology and designs that 
their rivals would need in order to develop their own competing chips. Um, and the whole point that they're saying is that the combined firm could stifle next generation technologies. Keyword there being could, in, in my opinion. This is a shift for U.S. antitrust. Regulators have traditionally focused on horizontal mer- mergers. This is a vertical integration, which it's been a while since they've, they've gone after vertical integration. NVIDIA's current situation is they license from ARM driver assistance systems. It licensed some, some designs for their data center CPU called Grace. It licenses some technology for their Bluefield data processing units. It licenses some technology for the Tegra line of system-on-a-chip processors that they make. So NVIDIA is already working very closely with ARM, and there is their vision for the data center isn't necessarily stifled by not being able to acquire ARM. But, and the FTC's concern is that NVIDIA will leverage its control of ARM, not only to win in the data center, but to basically be anti-competitive. They're sort of saying, we don't want you to do this acquisition because you could potentially engage in illegal activity Specifically, they call it a foreclosure strategy where essentially NVIDIA maybe pumps a bunch of R&D into developing more stuff at ARM and keeps the good stuff for itself or delays access to certain designs to the rest of the market. But for them, they get access to it earlier, stuff like that. Who do you think uh, ARM's largest licensees are? I mean, I guess Apple's a large one. Yeah, ADM. Apple, Qualcomm. The The argument from the FTC is that the profits on the additional sales in downstream markets are likely to be larger than it would earn from ARM. I guess the argument would be that they'll get the next generation of this equipment and it won't be as available to Qualcomm as it is to NVIDIA's uh, chip designers. It won't be as available to Apple as it will be to NVIDIA's chip designers. I don't know how that gets settled. seems to me the person who's got economic loss here is SoftBank because they negotiated the sell arm to the highest bidder, which was NVIDIA at $40 billion. The, A fair amount of the consideration was stock as NVIDIA, cash and stock. NVIDIA stock going up, but at least the articles I read said the if it closed today, SoftBank would get $70 billion, not 40 because the increase in NVIDIA stock price. Doubt if, if SoftBank could find someone else to sell it to uh, that would pass muster. Well, it may just no one who wants to buy it for $70 billion, but if you did find someone, you know, how, you know, how would they pass muster under the same kind of standards that, that NVIDIA is being held to. I, I think that's the inherent challenge. So their business model has proven to be relatively weak and they would need to pump a lot of lot more R&D into the company to make it work. But they're not, I mean, they have not been profitable under SoftBank's ownership. SoftBank pumped a bunch of R&D money in and they've yet to realize a return on it. So NVIDIA is saying that we'll be able to do it better. And they have a good case as to why they will, because they're they're really running the exact same playbook in their thesis for buying ARM that they did with their GPUs and the CUDA software. 
that goes with those GPUs. Any software developer can use the CUDA software for free, but it, it's proprietary to NVIDIA GPUs. NVIDIA sees a world where it starts developing software for ARM products, and that makes those ARM licenses more valuable because other companies will be able to develop products faster, better, et cetera, in the same way that there's a price difference in the GPU market between an NVIDIA product and an AMD product. And that price difference is totally has to do with the software moat that NVIDIA, NVIDIA has. So there is true value being delivered here. Qualcomm would have to compete against NVIDIA in the data center for data center chips. But Qualcomm yep. just made an acquisition to acquire another, basically an ARM competitor that was much smaller with the same intent that they want to own their full value chain. So I, I think a lot of this technology, it, it makes, it's, it's very compelling to own and control your destiny by vertically integrating. People are going to be resistant yeah. to it. Yeah. I don't view it as that much of a negative for NVIDIA, but Mike is the expert. Let's, let's move on to Apple. Mike sent me some stuff this morning, which I found fascinating because as a lot of you know, I, a big fan and own Amazon and Alphabet, not a big fan of Facebook or whatever they call it now, Microsoft, and not a big fan of Apple, even though Apple generates all this marvelous free cash flow. Um, I think they may be setting a new record for a best business to have free cash flow. I think it's like going to be over $100 billion, uh, the year we're in. Thinking terribly vulnerable making all those iPhones in China. But the uh, material Mike sent me, which I don't I don't know how to do this. Let me try to paraphrase it because Mike knows a lot more about this than I do. It's some, somewhere around five or six years ago, faced with concerns, not only being very dependent on China, Foxconn, which is, after all, a Taiwanese company, so but we all get along together strategy apparently made a deal with the Chinese government to spend a lot of money, like $150 or $300 billion over five years in supporting Chinese businesses. I mean, they could invest it for profit. I mean, they they invested a billion dollars in DD Global. This was fairly carefully worked out, apparently a 1,200-word letter of agreement between uh, kind of an extension of the Chinese Communist Party and Apple. Now, it turned it. Mike, if I overstated that at all, Mike? No, I don't think so. I, I think that I actually think what they did is pretty normal. And there's nothing really that surprising to me about what they've done. What's surprising is just the scale. And, and that's just a function of how big and important Apple is. It's a huge number. Right. But lots of smaller companies are doing the same thing in other Asian countries. Right. I don't know. I you know, we operate under something called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And one of the things you have to do, and you certainly run into this in the oil and gas and service business, you have to make sure if you're entering a country or paying for services or whatnot, you know, it's not going to some political figure here with that much money changing and I, I find it a little spooky on that particular uh, part of our uh, conduct by 
U.S. businesses uh, operating overseas. The other thing I'd remark is that I can't imagine that managing something like Apple, you don't try to diversify your sources of your hardware, but I certainly read plenty of articles about that, and it apparently just isn't feasible or is judged not feasible by the Apple management. But so far, so good. I mean, you have to hand it to them. They've come through a period of enormous amount of trade tension uh, between the United States and China, with Biden, by the way, still hanging on to the Trump tariffs. And they skated through it pretty well. But I guess we'll get some concluding comments from Mike, and then we'll get on to something other than NVIDIA and Apple. But over to you, Mike. I think there is risk to it. I actually was talking to Phil about this a couple hours ago, and the point I was making to him is China has a much longer time horizon. And clearly, Xi Jinping now, who is ruler for life, his perspective is much longer than even Tim Cook at Apple's perspective, for example. So they can partner, partner, partner until they decide they don't need you anymore. And it's, I think it's pretty obvious that China wants to develop technological prowess in China. And I think it's reasonable to assume that Apple set up the proper controls to basically glass wall off their China operations from the, from the U S when it comes to the different R and D investments and whatnot that they're making. But, you know, there's, they, they still are going to be in a position where they're, they're giving up some things to China. And we, we don't know yet how that'll play out. The flip side is when Trump imposed the, the tariffs on China, Tim Cook was pretty integral in, in working out that situation. He clearly did a good job of making sure that he wasn't, uh, and Apple wasn't as affected by it. But in a way, China is dependent on Apple, and then Apple sort of becomes a, a communication pathway in a way that both countries are dependent on. Yeah. Yeah. Tim Cook, I think, famously uh, went directly to Trump and said, look, if there's a tariff on the gear that Foxconn makes for us in China, iPhones and watches and whatnot, we will get significantly disadvantaged against Samsung. Certainly, you don't want to have a leading U.S. company be lose ground to Samsung, and that apparently uh, uh, kind of carried the day in terms of Apple and Foxconn situation. Mike, what else? What have we, uh, having, having indulged all this time, not only in oil and gas and interest rates and NVIDIA and Apple, what, what are we missing that's interesting from this past week? Uh, I, otherwise, just the the market volatility. I mean, that that certainly has been a bit of a roller coaster the last few days. To see how, remember that the in the short term the market's a, a voting machine, and the long term it's a weighing machine. We we see all this extreme reactions to the Omicron variant, and uh, you know, hopefully, we're in a place where we're able to handle it a little better than the Delta variant and and things go smoothly. I actually read a really interesting, I think it was Goldman Sachs report on the p- potential outcomes on Omicron. And, and what I, the one that I liked was the positive outcome, but their most positive outcome is relatively believable. 
So from it's got to have some some level of probability for success. And that is that Omicron actually sweeps through the population relatively quickly. And right now we're at a point where the number of people that are either vaccinated or have already had it or died. Uh, actually, I think in Germany, they said by June 2022, everybody in Germany will have either had it, died or or uh, or had the vaccine by June of 2022. There is a light at the end of the tunnel for this thing, I think. And I think that perspective that Omicron may accelerate transmission could be bad. But the plus side is, is that the, the effects seem like they're less bad than previous variants. So it may be more like the flu. It may be more like this. It could even be many years going forward, we'll be getting more COVID booster shots. But the resulting impact on the economy shouldn't be as bad. Yeah, I agree with that. And with that, why don't we thank the minute or two we have left, and we'll be on the phone with you, everyone, next Wednesday. And this year-end, Christmas happens Saturday and New Year's happens Saturday, so we'll definitely be on at 3.30 both Wednesdays. I'm not going anywhere, so we'll be on at 3.30, both those Wednesdays. Make sure everyone well. Bye-bye. us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.